Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of kick-ass bicycle data systems like the Quark Collector. Waterproof and wearable, it's the perfect tool for coaches and data-dedicated athletes. Collector uses GPS, ANT Plus, and cellular technology to let you seamlessly sync your high-definition data, share real-time tracking, and connect with fellow riders. Find out more at quark.com slash collector. This collector thing sounds like it has you written all over it, Trevor. It's oh, like, hell yeah. It's like peak, peak nerditude. I say that in the most loving possible way. This is Trevor geekiness on the fly, real time. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fritz, senior editor here at Bella News, sitting across the table, as always, from Coach Trevor Connor. How you doing, Trevor? Good. How are you doing, Kaylee? I am excellent. Well, today, uh, today I'm going to start with a little story. It's actually not that good a story, but it's a good way to start this podcast. About two years ago, I think 20, uh, 2015, 2014, I was at the Tour de France, covering the Tour de France, and I was wandering around at the team sky bus the morning of one of the one of the time trials and i'm cruising around and i see a piece of paper on the door of the team sky bus and i look a little bit closer and it turns out to be basically a list of of the team's warm-up so the entire team is doing the same warm-up one piece of paper is each rider's start time so basically a, a back calculation of when you should start warming up. And then the second piece of paper is a list of things that need to be done, which is five minutes easy, a couple of VO2 efforts. I look at it. It looks like a pretty hard warm up to me. I took a picture of it, threw it up on Instagram. People went crazy for it, which I guess isn't too surprising because it's, it's team sky's warm up. It seems like we're like we're, we're seeing the inside of the Death Star, so to speak. But upon speaking with Trevor recently, it sounds like Team Sky and its warm-up may, well, they may not have been right. They may have been a little over-exuberant in their warm-up. The latest science is, while it doesn't really jive with experience and sort of the traditional warm-up. So that's the first thing we're going to talk about is this experience versus science, this tradition versus the new science, and how the way it's always been done is maybe not the way it should be done. And thank you for starting this podcast by implying I know more than all of Team Sky. <laughs> I always enjoy starting a podcast with some dramatically ego-inflating delusion. Yes, Fast Talk, uh, officially better than Team Sky at bike racing. <laughs> maybe not. Nonetheless... We're going we're gonna to dive straight into this. Seriously, Trevor has this long list of studies that he's going to provide for us, and we are going to discuss all sorts of interesting things like something called PAP, which I don't really understand, and VO2 priming and things like that. So we're going to hear today from uh, a couple different experts. We're going to hear from Dr. Ben Rattray, who is a researcher in this field from Australia. Uh, we're going to hear from Carmen Small, who is a pro cyclist and has some sort of experience-based recommendations. And the first thing we want to talk about on this episode is this question of experience versus science. So Trevor, you tell me that basically what coaches have been telling us for a long time, you know, that's sort of the normal warmups may not be ideal according to some of the latest science. Can you dig into that a little bit more for us? So I think what's really cool about this topic is we're 
we really have experience and years of experience and coaches saying, here's what you should be doing. And very recently, we've had a lot of new science coming out saying, well, actually, that doesn't work. So we're going to dig into some of these studies. But what's really interesting about them is they compare, compare what is considered the proper warm-up uh, for various type of cycling events to a, a very different approach and have found that actually the, the traditional approaches uh, hurt performance. What's neat about this when you're, you're, you have science and experience saying, saying two different things is I'm not going to tell you one is right. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, you have to use a mix of both. And what we're ultimately going to get to here is you have to do a lot of individualization um, with your warm-up. We caught up with Carmen Small, who is a director and writer for Team Velo Concept Women and a multi-time U.S. national champion. With over a decade of pro experience in her legs, Carmen knows a lot about how individual a warm-up can be. It's taken me over 10 years to kind of dial something in that I know works for me, you know, and I, and I do coach, but I can't give them my, <laughs> you know, my warm up. It doesn't work for them necessarily. So, you know, I think it's a very personal thing. And I think you have to, as an athlete, listen to your body and figure out what's going to work for you the best. And, and uh, like my warm ups changed from when I first started until now. First, you have to get like a protocol, like, okay, I'm going to do 10 minutes, easy spinning. I'm going to do three builds and I'm going to do a few little 10 second sprints. You start with like a basic platform of what you want to do and then you can tweak it. You can start, okay, how did I feel in the first 15 minutes of the crit? Well, I felt great. Okay, well, let's do that again. Let's try it again. Or no, I still felt a little bit sluggish. Okay, well, what did you do too much? Like, did you overdo your warm up or did you not do enough? So that's your call you have to make. Does it need to be a little bit longer? Or are you getting into 30 minutes and you blew all your matches already in the warm up? So if you just start with something, you know, and there's online, there's so much mm-hmm. stuff online for warm ups, pick something. And then you can kind of go from there and tweak it and say, okay, this worked last time. I felt too tired. I, I didn't feel warmed up enough. I had a lot of lactic acid buildup. How can I fix that? And, I, you know, it is experimental. It's not, you're not going to come up with a perfect warm-up for yourself the very first try. Maybe it takes a couple of years to figure out what's going to actually work. And, and I, again, the key is, is to listen to your body. It's like you got to start understanding how your body's working and you experiment in training too. Okay, you have a set of intervals to do. Let's just do my warm-up, what I would do for a race, and then go out and do the intervals. Let's see how that feels. I think we neglect doing that, like doing like a mock run of things. But what I'm hearing from you is is develop a routine and have your routine and know it. Exactly. Okay, so we, we've now referenced sort of experience versus science and a traditional warm-up a couple different times. Trevor, can you provide for the listeners an idea what a traditional warm-up might be? There is no one exact traditional warm-up. A lot of it depends on the type of event you're doing. You're going to see a warm-up that a particular athlete does, and you're going to go, okay, that's my warm-up. I'm going to do this. This is what Chris Froome does. And what you don't realize is, well, that's just his warm-up for prologues, and it might not be the best thing to do before a four-hour road race. 
A traditional warm-up for short events is usually something that's 20 to 45 minutes in length. You're going to do some ramp-ups. You're going to ha- So you start low intensity. You slowly build up to anywhere from 70 to 95% of your max. Um, then a lot of athletes will do some two to five-minute efforts at race pace and finish it up with a few short 10 to 15-second sprint efforts. That's somewhere in there is your traditional warm-up. But why warm up at all? I mean, I'll say that, you know, I've definitely I've definitely rolled up to crits late and just jumped on the start line with zero warm up. And those first 5, 10, 15 minutes are pretty awful. So purely anecdotally, I can tell you that not warming up is not generally a good idea. But why physiologically do I want to be warming up before, well, I guess most events? So you did just touch on a, a really good point, and that's one place where definitely both experience and science agree. Some sort of warm-up is better than no warm-up. If you're doing a short, intense event or you're going to be in a race that's going to start with some sort of intensity, do a warm-up. You need it. In terms of what we're trying to do with the warm-up, and Kaylee, this is where I need you to stop me because I can really geek out here. So <laughs> I will try to cover this somewhat peripherally. But if I start talking about calcium channels and other things, just smack me around a few I'm times. Sc- I'm going to be the Trevor translator for the next uh, maybe five minutes or so. Yeah. Please do. I will try to be the Trevor translator. <laughs> <laughs> the first part, and this is almost exclusively what the the old research focused on. And they took the concept of a warm-up very literally, saying what we're trying to do is warm up your core temperature. What we're trying to do is warm up your muscles. Again, I'm not going to get too geeky here, but there's an effect in your muscles or in our bodies called the Q10 effect that talks about how temperature affects the various processes in our body, the effectiveness of your enzymes. And if your muscles get too cold, basically everything slows down. Your ability to use energy slows down. And, and this, is, this is not controversial at all. This kind of goes back to our leg warmer episode. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. we're, we're going to touch on that. And that's a big part of the warm-up. Big and, shout and, out to Peter Flax uh, for the leg warmer episode. Right. I know he hates that one. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> he does. He tweets at me all the time. I, I actually, oh no, I actually just had dinner with the, the team that I coach and we had a new rider on the team. We, we talked about keeping your legs covered and, and he admitted to me, he's like, oh, I don't have leg warmers. I don't have knee warmers. It's like, <laughs> my legs are never cold. And, and I just like, look, just go listen to our podcast. <laughs> First time I've ever said that. <laughs> anyway, back to heat. Back Moving to heat. on. Yeah. We'll talk a bit more about this in the recommendations, but the warming up your muscles has has two benefits. One is that even a a one degree increase in your muscle temperature can enhance exercise performance by two to five percent. That's big. The other thing it goes back to our conversation about um, clothing is if your muscles are cold, you are doing damage to your muscles. If you're about to jump into a, a four hour road race and it's cold out and it's raining, and your muscles aren't warm, you're going to do a ton of damage to those muscles. And then instead of being able to get through that four-hour race, you're going to start cramping and start getting muscle soreness two hours into the race and not be able to perform. In terms of warming up muscles, you do see that rise in temperature. It's quite rapid. Um, So you really see you're going to get most of the benefits from a warm-up in terms of warming up your core, warming up your muscles in about 10 to 20 minutes. 
So let's assume that it's 95 degrees out and that's not so important. Why else should I be warming up? Because obviously if it's 95 degrees out, that doesn't mean you don't need to warm up. Right. There are some people who say, if it's 95 degrees out, go put on a nice vest and sit in the shade. And there is something to that. But there are two other effects that this is where a lot of the newer research is really focusing. One is called VO2 priming. The other one, and I love this term, is post-activation potentiation or PAP. And I'll just call it PAP from this point forward. Let's start with the VO2 priming. To keep this one simple, basically, we can, off the gate, use our anaerobic energy sources very effectively. It takes time to get our aerobic energy systems up to speed because they there's a variety of reasons, but one of them is they rely primarily on, on fat for fuel, and you have to ramp up the mechanisms that are going to allow you to use that fat that get the Krebs cycle going, that allow your mitochondria to get up to speed and start using en- or, or producing energy aerobically. So if you have no warm-up and you start a race and you start a race hard, you're all anaerobic, and you're going to burn through all of your anaerobic energy. So one of the benefits of a warm-up is to get those aerobic mechanisms working. So when you go off the gun, you can rely more on on your aerobic metabolism, which is essentially limitless when we're talking about races, and you can spare some of that anaerobic energy. So a good example of this, there there was one study that looked at, at how much VO2 priming can help in even shorter, more intense track-style events or, or, or prologue time trials. And they found that using VO2 priming increased athletes' time to exhaustion by about 15 to 30%. PAP, or the post-activation potentiation, this one's actually quite complex mechanism. And this is where I'm going to avoid getting too deep because I'd have to start talking about regulatory light chains of myosin and calcium sensitivity and a whole bunch of other factors. Yeah, I I regularly have to stop myself talking about those things, Trevor. Well, it is exciting. (laughs) That's why I don't have many second dates, but it is exciting. (laughs) Here's the way I like to think of PAP. Our bodies have defense mechanisms in them. If our muscles are not warm, if they are not ready to work, we basically shut down our ability to fully use that muscle because the body feels if I now allow you to f- use this muscle 95 to 100%, you can potentially damage it. So your muscle won't be as strong when it's cool. If you start doing some activity, your body starts saying, okay, now this muscle's primed and I'm going to allow you to use more of the muscle. So the classic example of this is if you wanted to see how much you can bench press, You can't just sit down on the bench cold, do a single rep, and hit your max bench press. You have to do a few at lower weights before you can do your max press. And so we have the same thing in cycling. If you can do some hard efforts before a race, especially a very intense race, your muscles are going to open up. So that's called the PAP effect. Dr. Ben Rattray is a professor at the University of Canberra in Australia. He's worked frequently with the Australian Institute of Sport and recently published a very comprehensive review of the science on warming up. He shares some of his thoughts on the physiology behind a warm-up. If we look at moderate intensity exercise, then typically most people 
warm up, if you like, to a certain temperature in the first uh, 10, 15 minutes. Beyond that, then then in terms of a, a core temperature or a muscle temperature, people tend to plateau. So they're not from a muscle temperature or, or body temperature perspective, people aren't warming up anymore after about 15 minutes. So then I guess the question is, well, what's the purpose of the warm-up if you're going beyond that 15 minutes? Um, and from our perspective, uh, once you've got that temperature there, particularly for the for those short events, um, then physiologically it, it doesn't seem to us that there's there's much more rationale for doing for doing anything longer. Well, that actually brings me to what was going to be my first question: is what are you trying to accomplish with the warm up? Is it just get the the core temperature and the muscle temperature up, or are there other things you're trying to accomplish as well? So, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know. There's probably lots of things, but but what we can measure is is temperature. We can mu- uh, measure muscle temperature. We can measure core temperature, and the associations between temperature and subsequent performance are, are really strong. So, there's absolutely we want temperature to increase. Um, what that is actually doing in terms of everything else in the body, perhaps we can't say too much, but. Obviously, there's there's links between uh, enzyme reaction rates, so how quick all those reactions are happening in the body and and temperature. So we know that ATP will get broken down quicker if in a warmer muscle. So when you want ATP, when you want the energy really quickly, clearly you need a warm muscle. Um, so certainly, um, muscle temperature and and core temperature. Um, if nothing else, seem to be a really nice measure where we can actually say, well, we've achieved what we what we were after from a, a warm-up perspective. But perhaps one of the biggest things that they achieve, and maybe not so much in a in a 60-second uh, effort, but but definitely for efforts that are longer than 60 seconds, um, particularly the high-intensity efforts, so maybe a, a four-minute effort or something like that, um, Oxygen uptake is is obviously really key. If if you can get uh, an athlete with a high VO2 max, they're typically going to perform higher. But if you can get them to access more of that VO2 more quickly in the competition right from the gun, then you're also going to save that anaerobic stores or that sprint effort for the later effort. So, So warming up seems to be influencing how well people can use ox- their oxygen and, and increase their oxygen uptake as well, So, or VO2 kinetics, as the literature tends to talk about. So uh, there are lots of things we probably want to achieve, uh, and I haven't even touched on the um, psychology aspect, which, is, which I think is really important but, but really under-researched. Uh, but from a, from a physiological perspective, Temperature is is a pseudo, if you like, that seems to be linked to many other processes that are happening in the body. Okay. So we don't really know what um, PAP is actually doing, but um, it does also make sense that temperature um, plays a key role in everything that we think or most of the things that we think PAP is actually achieving in the first place. So PAP, absolutely crucial. Um but if you like, I think temperature is probably giving us a good idea of what's happening there um, anyway. Okay, so but let's talk a little bit about time frames. So how early do I need to start doing this? How late do I need to stop doing this? How close, I guess, how close should the end of my warm-up be to, to my actual race and why? 
That's a really good question, and, and that's a really important question, and it's probably one of the ones where the science says, we're still figuring this out. We're really still figuring this out. There is a balance here because the problem is a warm-up is going to fatigue you. So if you go and do a hard warm-up and then jump into your race, even though you're primed, even though you have that PAP effect, the fatigue's going to undo all of it. So you need this balance between how much time do I need to recover after my warm-up to clear out the fatigue, to let my lactate levels come back down, to rebuild some of these anaerobic energy systems or, or substrates, um, while not losing the warm-up effect? And we don't really have an answer on that. It seems to be somewhere around you need at least eight minutes, but if you start getting up over 16, 20 minutes – you start losing the effect of the warm-up. A couple of things they have found is the VO2 priming lasts about 10 minutes. And then it's, you start seeing a sharp decline. So if that's really important to you, you need to make sure you only have about 10 minutes between finishing your warm-up and starting the race. Maximum of 10 minutes. Really. Maximum of 10 minutes. Likewise, the warming up of your muscles and your core starts seeing a pretty precipitous decline at about 10 minutes. One of the things you can do about that that's getting very popular with cyclists is warming vests hmm. that you put on after your warm-up to keep the core temperature up. The PAP effect, they don't know. So I was always told it lasts at, at most about 20 minutes, but now some of the research is saying longer, some of the research is saying shorter. So we, we really don't know with that one. So it sounds to me like w you really want to end your warm-up, what, somewhere between 8 and 10 minutes before you start, which is obviously easier to do if you're doing something like a time trial. You have an exact moment where you're going to set off, but you know, a road race or a cross race or something where you have a bunch of people lining up together, that could be a little bit trickier. I would say at this point, I have read so many different opinions in the research and also just advice from, from experts that the most I can say about the transition period is less than six minutes is too short. More than 20 minutes is too long. And what's right in between there is highly individual. So you should really experiment with that. Can you do stuff like, okay, so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking at the start of my old mountain bike races. They would line us up 15, 20 minutes before we would actually go anywhere. And so we would just sort of get off our bikes and like jump around and like do some jumping jacks and, you know, run a bit. Does that, does that kind of stuff kind of keep your body in its, okay, I need to use these muscles soon. You know, does it, does it buy you some time? In terms of physiologically, it, it might lengthen the PAP effect a little bit. It will certainly keep core temperature a little warmer. My gut response is it's going to be more mental than physical. And, and that is one of the issues we have in racing. It's certainly one of the things I hated in, in crits because people started lining up sooner and sooner and sooner for crits, so you'd go and do this warm-up, but then you'd sit on the start line for 30 minutes, and you might as well not have warmed up. Right. So what's worse, lining up early? I should say, what's better, lining up early or lining up at the back with a real warm-up? What would you prefer? Oh, I have been struggling with that one for a long time. I used to be, I will line up at the back and get my warm-up and really try to finish my warm-up within 10 minutes of the race. As I've personally gotten older, 
and I have a hard time getting up. It takes me longer to get up to speed. I have found doesn't matter. It's going to hurt like hell in those first couple laps. <laughs> but if I'm on the back, I'm out the back before I get up. I ramp up to speed. So right. I'm, I'm now opting personally for the lineup near the front. So it really depends on the, the type of rider you are. And it's an important thing to know about yourself. If you are somebody like me, that those first few laps of a crit are really going to hurt. It takes you a while to get up to speed. A, a warm-up is critical for you, but I think it's even more important that you line up at the front. For somebody who can really be full speed off the gun, it, it probably doesn't matter. It, since you don't need that much of a warm-up, you can line up at the front. But if you line up at the back, you can work your way up anyway. Probably somewhat dependent on the course as well. I mean, if, right. you know, if it's going to be a super technical course that's hard to move up on, then it's more important to line up in the front for sure. Certainly one of the things I've always seen in the pro crits is the best crit riders just kind of casually line up at the back. And and while I'm sitting in the middle of the field, my tongue hanging out, dying in those first few laps, they're just casually passing me and working their way up to the front <laughs> because they can do that. Right. So some of it depends on how good you are. Yes. Anyway, moving on, I think the the next topic for us to cover is a is a little bit of a deeper dive in something that we mentioned right at the beginning of the episode, which is this this notion of the science really challenging experience. We've all had coaches for a long time. Uh, we've all had personal experience with with warming up. You know, I think that sort of traditional warm up is pretty well known at this point. How is the science beginning to to change the way that we look at warm ups? So we'll actually talk about several studies, and some of them are really going to challenge notions that all of us have held about warm-ups. And I'll admit, when I started doing this research, I had a very traditional belief. And after reading this research, it was really hard for me to read some of it. And, and I've certainly adjusted some of the things that I, I've recommended to my athletes. One of the studies we're going to talk about that used a 3,000-meter time trial they really focused on VO2 priming and found it didn't correlate at all with performance. Even though they saw the effects, it didn't correlate with performance. PAP, one study that was led by a Dr. McIntosh and who I actually spoke with and found that, yes, they did see PAP, but the problem was in order to get that post-activation potentiation, you had to generate so much fatigue that it ended up really just being a bust. The, the fatigue outdid any of the benefits of the post-activation potentiation. So it just ended up being kind of equal. And he compared the traditional track warm-up, what you saw world-class track riders generally doing, to a much lower intensity, much shorter warm-up. And in his study, the shorter, easier warm-up produced better performance gains. So, so these were, were national caliber or higher track riders. You even look at the, the title of a study. It was less is more. Standard <laughs> warm-up causes fatigue and less warm-up per, uh, permits greater cycling power output. Pretty good headline. It is, it is a pretty good <laughs> little headline. Long, little long, but you know, he's a scientist. We'll give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the places where they, they really challenged Here's what the pros are doing. Let's see if that is better for pros. And the results they found is no. Actually, even the pros are doing too much. 
Trevor, you keep mentioning these studies and, and you're sort of, you're giving us the skin deep dive. Uh, give me the deep dive. Give me the deep dive on these things because I, I have to say, you know, as a traditional warm-upist, I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> All right. So there were three studies that I really delved into that I found to be really interesting. And bear in mind, I'm going to tell you about three studies, but there were a lot more studies showing very similar things. So the first one that I mentioned was was Dr. McIntosh's study, and they used national class track riders. So they compared two warm-ups. One was a more traditional track rider warm-up, which was four min- 45 minutes in length. And it would start with the riders ramping from about 60% of their, their max heart rate up to about 95% over time. And then they would finish with four six-second sprints. He created a protocol that was much shorter. I believe it was about 20 minutes in length. They would only ramp up to 75% of their, their max heart rate and then finish with a single sprint, which for those of us who are used to traditional warm-ups, that almost sounds lazy. Surprisingly, what they found was that when they did the traditional warm-up, didn't perform as well on a 30-second a Wingate test. So this, this was truly a, a test for track sprinters. However, the one thing that he did point out, and this is going to be important when we get to our recommendations, was it was very highly individual. There still were some athletes that actually did see true PAP effect. There were some athletes who didn't. And you saw a wide variance in the benefits from, from each type of warm-up. Another study published in 2015 in the Journal of Sports Science had athletes perform four different types of warm-ups to see the effect on a three-kilometer time trial. So we're talking, for them, it was about a, a five- to six-minute race. Three of the warm-ups were designed by the researchers. So it was about 10 minutes of a fairly easy, constant load, and then five by 10-second bouts of either 100% of their peak aerobic power, so what we thought referred to as kind of your VO2 max power, 150% of that peak power, and then just all out 10-second efforts. The fourth warm-up was basically said to the athletes, do your standard warm-up, whatever you're used to. So it's just do yourself selected what you like to do. The results of the study, the high intensity, doing those five sprints all out, when the riders did that warm-up, they performed the worst. The best performance was with the riders who did either what was the, the moderate warm-up, so just those 10-second bouts at, at peak aerobic power, and the absolute best was the self-selected warm-up. Hmm. Which would – well, I guess what it depends what the self-selected warm-up was, but that would suggest sort of opposite findings to previous study you're talking about? Well, so this study still showed too much intensity fatigues you right. and you don't perform as well. So it certainly backed that. But the surprising thing about the study was when riders did the warm-up that they were used to, what they found worked for them, it really did work for them. So this is one of those arguments for experience plays an important role here. You have to find the warm-up that's right for you. And they compared those warm-ups and they were wildly different from just riding very easy to very complex with with a fair amount of intensity in it. That was a really important discovery of of that study. So a third study that I thought was was really fascinating, this one was also published in 2015 in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. And this was by a research team over in in Sweden and Norway. 
they took, again, high-level cyclists and had them, the, the test of performance was a four-minute time trial. And they had these athletes do three different warm-ups. One protocol that they did two variations on was based on what elite Norwegian athletes do. So kind of the highest level at the national and even the Olympic level. So it was what we just, what we talked about earlier of doing some, some steady longer efforts followed by several short high intensity efforts. So I said there were two variations on that warm up. One variation was they did that full protocol and then six minutes later they did the time trial. The other variation was they did that full protocol and then they waited 10, 20 minutes and did the time trial. The third warm-up was just 20 minutes at 50% of peak power output. So just basically riding easy, very, very moderate tempo. And then waiting six minutes and doing the time trial. The group that did that full, fairly complex warm-up waited six minutes and then did the time trial performed far and away the worst. The group that waited 20 minutes and then did the time trial performed equally to the group that just did the moderate 20-minute spin. But what they saw in the group that did the moderate 20-minute spin, they actually had some better blood markers. So lower blood lactates, a higher pH, which you want, and higher levels of bicarbonate, which is what we use to buffer acid. So looking at the blood markers, just doing that moderate 20-minute spin seemed to put the riders in the best place. Hmm. Those are three studies that are really challenging this notion of you've got to go do this very complex, hard warm-up with several efforts. And each of these studies is really saying, hey, when you, when you slow down, you go easier, you do less, you seem to perform better. But you have to do it for a little while. But you have to do yeah. it for a little while, and, and maybe some efforts in there are right. But there is a balance between those benefits and the fatigue you generate. And when we're talking about fatigue, we're looking at things like elevating your blood lactate, lowering your bicarbonate, lowering your, your anaerobic energy stores. And really what they're showing is a lot of people are doing warm-ups that are producing a lot of fatigue, and that fatigue is outweighing the gains. And that you need to back down and do less in order to shift that balance. That was kind of the gist of these studies. There is one other thing that we want to point out with the science and, and one other study that I want to quickly mention, and that's the fact that most of the benefits that you see from these warm-ups really only occur in the first couple minutes of exercise, and they're really more for efforts that are high intensity that, that really rely on our anaerobic energy systems, less so for our aerobic energy systems. So again, there was another study, similar study, that looked at the effect of low versus high intensity warm-ups. Um, they were looking at the effect on a three-kilometer time trial again. And they had the low intensity group just do a 15-minute moderate warm-up. High intensity group then did the same 15-minute low intensity warm up and then added some hard efforts right at the end of that warm up. Just like the other studies, uh, they really didn't see any gains from doing the high intensity. More what they saw in their study was they compared those warm ups to no warm up at all. 
And really what you saw was the benefits of doing a warm-up was really only in the first two minutes of the time trial. After that, the people who did no warm-up, their 500-meter splits were the same as the people who actually did a warm-up. So the gains are really short, and the gains are more in things like anaerobic glycolysis, what's called muscle fiber conduction velocity, ATP turnover, which are all really fancy ways of saying, unless you're going really hard, the warm-up's not going to do that much to help you. It's definitely more of a sort of prologue type effort than a time trial type effort, really. Prologue or track. Hence the reason all these studies really just looked at track riders or track type events versus, I, I couldn't find a single study that looked at what, what's the effects of a warm up on a five hour stage at the tour? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Anecdotally, there's definitely a, you know, a race like that that gives you more time to sort of cruise into it, right? To sort of uh, apply a warm up when you're already racing. I do wonder though. So, I mean, the other thing that, that sort of that triggers in my head when you, when you talk about, you know, it only improves early efforts. Does it improve? Okay, so let's let's take a prologue for example. You know, those first two minutes are going to be super super intense, but maybe you have another you have another five ten minutes after that. Does not warming up, you're not as efficient for those first two minutes. Does that then spill over into being essentially more tired for the remaining period, or does it not seem to matter? At least what this study was showing is that you're going to lose time if you do no warm up. But you're going to lose all that time in the first couple minutes. And then the, the rest of the time trial, your, your results are going to be comparable to if you had done a warm-up. Hmm. Interesting. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of next-generation power meters and other kick-ass bicycle data systems. Their Calvin app is the digital wrench for Quark's power meter technology. Calvin uses Bluetooth Low Energy or Ant Plus to deliver firmware updates, diagnostics, power meter zeroing, and calibration from your desktop, laptop, or smartphone. Find out more at quark.com. I should mention here that this podcast is actually be coming out at about the same time as an article that I wrote on warming up. So you'll see some similar information between this podcast and the article. I would just take advantage of this podcast to expand on it a bit. One of the things I shared in that article that whenever athletes ask me about warming up, I always love to tell the story of a, a couple teammates from of mine back in 2011. Uh, so I had Scott Tietzel and, and Chad Haga, who's now over in Europe doing the Grand Tours. At the time, they were very comparable time trialists and two of the top time trialists in, in, in the country. And I loved to watch their warm up because Scott's warm up, I kid you not, took about an hour and a half. And he'd have his bike set up. He had a mat set up on the ground by his bike. And he would do some work on the bike with various efforts. Then he would get down and do some stretching and some core work, get back on the bike and go back and forth and do this. I couldn't even figure out how he remembered everything that he had to do in this warm-up. But it worked for him. Chad's warm-up for a time trial was basically 10 minutes spinning around in the parking lot. <laughs> so that was... whenever Turns out Chad was right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott. Or that, or somebody's finally told Chad, stop doing that, do a warm up, and you'll do better in the time. Who knows? And that's actually the big question is uh, which one was doing the better warm up, or were they? I always tell that story as 
warmups are really individual and you got to find what works best for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, just from personal experience, what always worked best for me was actually not a very long warm up, maybe, maybe 10 minutes, but with a couple little, little sprints thrown in. And I don't know if that was because of the type of rider that I was, that was sort of, you know, a, a lot of anaerobic power and, and sort of fast twitch power that I felt like I needed to sort of open that system up a little bit. And then I would feel better in the, in the first bit of the race. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily what I would do before a, a long road race, but before a time trial, before a crit in particular, you know, just a, almost a mental warm up as much as a physical warm up for for me anyway. Part of a warm up was just getting into the zone where you where you're going to have to put yourself in in the race, right? Like mentally putting yourself there. And for me, so for a crit, that would be a couple sprints because you're sprinting out of every corner for an hour, right? For a time trial, it would be getting up into that sweet spot your time trial pace that you know you can hold it's tough to hold but you know you can hold you know as fast as you're going to be going in the time trial for me it was getting up to that a couple times before a time trial and i think that was that was mental as much as anything else you know that was actually something that was covered in a lot of the studies many of them mentioned the importance of the psychological side of a warm up doing a warm up even if it's not doing much for you physiologically if it gets you on the line and makes you feel ready then, then there's a real benefit to that. And what they have shown is that a lot of your elite athletes in all sports, a big part of their warm-up is going to be self-talk. It's going to be visualization of the race. No, I used to, and this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but my first couple pro races, I got so intimidated. I was out the back, not because of strength, but because I was afraid to be in the field with those guys. Right. So one of the things I did as part of my warm-up was I would ride around and look at all these pro riders and then just mutter under my breath, you shouldn't have even effing shown up. <laughs> and I'd just start going, you don't have a chance against me and just talk myself up. So when I got to that race, I'd look around and go, I belong here. You guys can't touch me. And as kind of dumb as that sounds and overinflating, it was certainly overinflating myself the effect it had was I could ride at the front of the field and I was comfortable up there and I wasn't intimidated. It has a big impact. Totally. I mean, it's just like, you know, when people win one race, they tend to keep winning races, right? Yep. It takes so long to get that first one. Then you realize, oh, I can do this and you keep winning. Yep. You know? So you can do that in the warm-up. It, it, has a, it has its benefit. Dr. Rattray agrees that the mental component of a warm-up is critical and sometimes overlooked. I was really interested. You said, do you think the psychology aspect of the warm-up is, is really key? How do you think psychology plays a role? Oh, well, I think psychology has a role in, in lots of ways. Um, that During the warm-up, you can use that time to really focus. You can right. draw your attention into a race strategy or into um, getting in some kind of mental state where you psych yourself up for a, for a maximal type effort. So the, the warm-up... Um, doesn't necessarily have to be, but it, it's clearly an ideal time where you can think about those psychological strategies. You can think about the feel. You can um, really draw the attention into the the task that you're about to do. So I think from those reasons, the warm up uh, is is quite crucial there. What would you recommend based on on all the the research you've done for? A warm-up, and I'm thinking two scenarios. One, um, where you have a cyclist who's getting ready for a road race that might be three, four hours long, and it's probably going to start out a little slower. And then the other scenario being somebody who's getting ready for a 20-minute time trial where they're going to have to be going right at threshold pretty much out, off the gate. 
Uh, I'll, I'll tackle the time trial one first because I, I think that's easier in a way. But, um, I mean, time trial is really about getting up to your to your maximum power as quickly as you can and then holding it right. So I think from that perspective, you know, there's probably a, a half an hour ride or, or maybe less if it's if it's a quite a short time trial um, of just fairly moderate intensity. And then I would definitely be be making some race efforts and maybe maybe four race efforts of, of, of two minutes each or something like that. I think that's typically what I would say from a time trial perspective, and, and that would be easily sufficient to warm up, etc. provided it's not a 39-degree day like it's going to be here in Canberra on Friday. Right. Uh, for the longer races, it, it's hard to say. I was at the Tour Down Under, uh, the um, UCI World Tour event a couple of weeks ago, in Australia, and I know the pro cyclists there. They they spend a couple of hours, some of them, warming up for a ride, which then starts with a neutral zone, and then they and then they ride for like five or six hours afterwards. Right. So what are, what are they doing that length of warm up for? But to be honest, I, I I couldn't tell you. I mean, obviously, some of them are going to try and go from the gun, uh, and they want some TV time or whatever it is that you know they want to make a move early because that's part of the team tactics or whatever it might be. So I get that it completely makes sense uh, from that perspective. Um, but for the others, I, I'm not sure it's a pure warm up. I'm not sure it's more a uh, just making sure there's there's K's in the legs. So. Uh, what do I think would be the ideal scenario just from a warm-up perspective for a two- to three-hour race? Uh, look, I think it's probably 20 to 30 minutes, pretty cruisy out there. If you want to make a few uh, race-type efforts uh, before the race, then by all means do it. I'm not sure how much that's going to contribute um, to the actual performance. But, but a lot of people report that they feel better, uh, and maybe it's just that getting that blood flow happening a bit quicker. Before a Tour de France stage, before a big long Tour de France stage, for example, you you know you, you cruise around the the start village in whatever town they're in, and guys are just sort of hanging out. They're having coffee. They're they're reading Le Keep, which is the the newspaper there. They're really not all that concerned about a warm up in general. Chris Froome on a flat stage of the Tour de France, he's just drinking coffee up until the up until the start gun goes. Yep. Well, look, I, I will tell you a couple of my secrets for the warm-up, especially for, for a road race or a, a road race and a stage race. I think anybody who's sitting on a trainer putting out all these efforts, they're, they're missing out on some of the most important things. My strategy, I just rode easy, but I would ride around. I'd go see what United Healthcare is doing. I'd go see what Toyota United's doing. I'd go see what all the big teams were doing. And it's the same thing. If they're all sitting in a lounge chair joking, okay, it's going to be easy. Nothing's going to happen. If all the domestiques for this squad or these squads are sitting on trainers with that look of death, you know that we're going to be going hard off the gun and you better be ready. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in Grand Tours before where if a stage is starting with an uphill, you see all the guys who want to make that breakaway on the trainers beforehand looking uh, a little bit frightened. You also, it's a good way to figure out who wants to be in the breakaway that day because those guys will definitely be warming up. Yes. The other secret is... You warm up in the parking lot, you go talk to guys. You wouldn't believe how many guys, if you just start chatting with them, start telling you their whole team strategy. <laughs> and that's more valuable than any warm-up in my book. <laughs> For sure. Well, let's let's get to some sort of concrete recommendations here. I mean, I, I think we 
we've established that it's it's a, it's extremely likely that what you're doing for a warm up right now is not necessarily what you should be doing. We've also established that a warm up may not actually be important at all if you're looking at longer events. Let's talk about what exactly you should be doing. Say before a road race, before a short time trial, before a crit. Let's go. Let's go through these. Yeah. So what I'd say is also be interesting is let's first just talk about what the science is saying we should be doing, and, and then really focus on what experience says that we should be doing, and we can see where where they say the same thing and, and where they say something different. So we've already covered one, which is science is basically saying. Most of the benefits in warm-ups are for short events or high-intensity events and high-intensity right off the gun. Another thing that we're really seeing is how highly individual the warm-up is. And that kept coming across in the studies, even though they would say that too hard a warm-up was generally worse, they would still say often that individualization had a huge impact. Hmm. Other things that the science is showing is that you need a, a transition or a recovery period. Don't finish your warm-up two minutes before the race. You need time for your body to clear out some of that fatigue while maintaining some of the warm-up. I'm actually going to go to what Dr. Ratray wrote in his review as the ideal warm-up, knowing that he was focusing more on short, intense events. Basically, you want an active warm-up consisting of a brief aerobic proportion of less than 15 minutes. So that's just that riding easy at 65, 70%. And then completion of four to five activation sprints or race pace effort. You know, some people prefer the, the two to three minute more threshold or below type effort. Your, your track riders or the high people for looking at doing a high intensity event are going to prefer more of a, a sprint type effort. They've shown that a 30-second sprint has no benefits over just doing a 6- to 10-second sprint. And the 6- to 10-second sprint is going to produce less fatigue. The other thing that they showed helped a, a bit is some what they called small-sided games, basically doing things that are very specific to the event that you're in. So, for example, track riders, because they are going to have to hit real high cadences in their race, will do some cadence work as part of their warm-up, and, and that can have a lot of value. The transition period is one of the trickiest parts of the warm-up. Dr. Rattray shares some of his thoughts on how to address it. I think the, I think the trick for uh, a lot of people with warm-up, and this is definitely the angle that we were um, looking at in our research and, and where we noticed that there was a bit of a gap was um, the time period that happens between um, the availability of warm-up and then if you have to go through marshalling periods or you're sitting on a start line for a long time, um, then we were quite conscious that that was an, an issue. And if, if that was longer than, say, 10, 15 minutes, then we know, we know muscle temperature is dropping quite dramatically at that stage. So whilst that warm-up is really important, it's important, particularly for those high-intensity efforts, so more like a time trial, that, you, that you're still warm at the start line. And so from that perspective, it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to find ways to, to keep warm. So that's when maybe some uh, warmer clothing is important. Uh, we were using heated jackets, for instance. How does it change if it's really cold or really hot? I mean, you, one of the first things we were talking about was a warm-up is intended to generate heat. So I'm imagining that uh, outside air temperature 
is relevant to to what you want to be doing before uh, before an event. Yeah, the outside temperature has a huge impact on what you want to do with your warm-up, and it's going to change what you're doing dramatically. Let's start with that hot day. If you remember, really one of the, the biggest benefits of a warm-up is, is raising your core temperature. If it's 90 or 100 degrees out, your core temperature is already hot. Your muscles are already hot, so you don't need that gain. More importantly... In a lot of the research looking at fatigue, what causes fatigue in a race? What, what are the factors that lead to that point in the race where we just can't go anymore and we pop out the back? One of the biggest ones that's been identified is once our core temperature goes above a certain point, we shut down. So on a hot day, the most important thing you should be doing is trying to keep your core cool. If you go out and do a 30-minute warm-up with a whole bunch of efforts, all you are doing is ensuring that you are going to blow up in the race, or at least blow up earlier. So there's actually good argument on those really hot days to just sit under a tree somewhere, even put a cooling vest on, and at the most, just do a couple minutes spin before the race. On a cold day, you see some of the opposite effects. We already talked about the fact that if your muscles are cold, you get tearing, you get damaged. That will also fatigue you in a race and, and pop you out the back. So this is where you need to make sure your muscles are warm, and this is where you need to both do a good warm-up, but you also need to keep your, your muscles covered, especially during that transition period. So once you finish your warm-up and you have that 10 minutes before you start racing, put the leg and arm warmers on, put the jacket on. A lot of cyclists are now actually putting warming vests on that will keep you warm until you start the race. If you're going to strip anything off, have somebody to meet you at the, the start line and don't strip it off until the race is about to start and then toss it to, to whoever's taking your gear. The right warm-up really depends on the situation. Before we sum up our advice, Small has a wealth of knowledge to share on how to deal with each scenario. Also, it's like, okay, are you warming up for a prologue or are you doing a 40K time trial? Is it in the middle of a stage race or is it a one-day race? <laughs> you know, so it's like all of those factors do play a big role into it. And so it's hard just to like, have a set protocol you know i think it's easier for like let's say track racers maybe because they tend to have the same schedule you know right they know their race is going to be the same or whatever that might be but in general you know a typical warm-up it's like spin easy for 10 15 minutes and then you know you do a few pyramids you know a little some builds so into just below threshold or at threshold and then it's debatable whether you need to go over threshold or not. Some people like to go, you know, do two minutes of over threshold or less. I personally like to do less. I like to do shorter, kind of higher into zone five, if you will, but a shorter amount of time. I don't like to spend a lot of time in, in that zone in my warm up. And so you raised a, another really interesting point that it, it's going to vary depending on how you feel that day, whether you show up to, to right. race day and you're feeling awful or, or ready to kill it. So right. what what things do you look for when you arrive at the race to say, okay, I got to change my warm-up routine because of X? So, you know, it's like you show up to a stage race and you have a crit and you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm just so heavy. I'm tired from the couple of days before, whatever. Most of the times the crits are in the afternoon for our, for like 
elite riders. So mm-hmm. it's nice because we always have the morning to kind of, okay, let's do a spin. Then you really know how your body feels. If you go out for 30 minute easy, you can have that reaction pretty quickly. Then that's easy to adjust. But, you know, it's like hard if your age grouper and your race is first thing, 8 a.m. I mean, how are you to know? So you're feeling a little sluggish, do maybe a shorter warm up, but do some higher intensity in your warm up, like 30 seconders, um, 10 second sprint level sprints. You don't need to log out and do like, you know, a bunch of LP tempo warming right. up. I think it's more like trying to get that pop back, getting your legs going. And then again, if it's like, if it's super hot out, you don't want to sit there and on the trainer, you know, for 30 minutes before your race, you know, you got to pay attention to the weather and maybe instead of sitting on the trainer, you go out for 10 minutes spin, see how your legs feel instead of if it's really hot out. I mean, that's like the worst thing you can do is just like slog out on the trainer and get more hot and dehydrated. So what if you show up and you just feel on fire and, and ready to go? Do you back down on, do you trust that and back down on your warm up, or do you say, no? Yeah, I, I don't. usually do. Yeah. I, I actually usually do. If I'm feeling good, I don't need to do anymore. Save it for the race. But again, it comes down to individuals. Like when I was racing a lot of crits, I barely warmed up for a crit. Like I could go pretty quickly and get, get into it. Like, and again, it's like, well, most of the reason why was because I knew how to sit in the pack. So it wasn't like I was having to put out so, so much energy in the first 15 minutes of the race. I could sit in and feel comfortable, you know? So I think that helps a lot too. Like I didn't have to, like I used that part as my warm up. Um, but usually if I'm feeling good before a race, I don't do much. Maybe I go, you know, I think it's important to go through your gears, get on the bike, make sure your bike is working well and that use that as your little spin around warm up. Whenever I'm doing a time trial, I always get jump on my bike. First thing I get to the venue get kitted up. I jump on my TT bike. I go through all the gears, making sure everything works good. How the, exactly how I want to race it. And then I put it away and warm up on the trainer on my road bike or secondary TT bike, whatever is there. I think that's really important to make sure your equipment's working well and correctly. Of course, before a crit or a road race, definitely go through your equipment, making sure the gears work, everything, tire pressure, all of that is important. If you're warming up on the trainer, for sure, you got to make sure that you're keeping hydrated because you're sweating so much more than if you're just out on the road warming up. Keeping in a cool place, Something that's covered, ideally, not just like baking in the sun. Let's try to distill this as much as we can. Let's make this as simple as possible. What does a warm-up for, let's start with a short time trial, prologue style, you know, three to ten minutes. What does that warm-up look like? So I'll qualify all of these by saying you have to individualize. So what we're giving you is a starting point, and then you have to experiment to find what works for you. So that short event, that prologue, or if you're a track rider, that's where you need to make sure you're ready because those couple minutes at the start of an event are most of the race for you. So remember what the science said, a lot of athletes do too much and are fatigued. So really what we're looking at is start with something 15 to 20 minutes in length, do some easy riding for a while, maybe a bit of a ramp up getting up close to that threshold sort sort of intensity, 
and then just a few, even just one or two short sprint efforts. Then you want to have at least six minutes of recovery. I'm shooting in the wind here, but would say somewhere around 10 to 15 minutes from your warm up to the start of your event. So really a lot less than you probably assumed coming into this. Yeah, still some efforts, but generally sort of a less intense warm up than than I think is is traditional. What about for something slightly longer? You know, let's let's look at a at a road race for example. I mean, I think that from personal experience, my warm up for a road race would be very very little. Let's make the assumption that the beginning of the road race is going to be particularly difficult. Is this the kind of situation where you really just want to cruise around for 10, 15 minutes really, really slow? I mean, you talked about a study earlier that showed that 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 was a pretty good warm-up in and of itself. So I think when you're talking about crits and road races, the the most important question to ask is, how is this race going to start? If you know that it's just going to roll off the line and everybody's going to be talking for 45 minutes, no, save your energy. Don't start burning all your fuels, just, you know, if it's cold outside, get that bit of a warm up to make sure your muscles are ready. But otherwise, it's just riding around in the parking lot for five, 10 minutes. And, or nothing and, at all, right? And nothing or nothing at all if, yeah. if you're okay with that. Crits often start out hard. So you want, you want some intensity. You want to, you want to be a little bit ready for that crit. If the road race is starting with a big climb or you're seeing all the big teams warming up and you know that it's going to be a, a attacks off the line, then yeah, you got to do some sort of warm up. Probably not as big a warm up as what you need to do if you're a track rider or a prologue specialist, specialist, but we're even telling them what you think you need to do for those events is, is probably bigger than what you actually need. So again, I would opt towards that 15 to 20 minute warm up with, with a few efforts. And that's where you experiment with what efforts work for you. Whether you like that, let's do a three-minute effort at, at threshold or close to threshold, or whether you prefer that, let's do a couple sprints. Well, there you have it. Turns out, I think many of us have been doing warm-ups, uh, well, wrong is, is, a, is a tough way to say it, but maybe just over-exuberantly. We've been doing a little bit too much warm-up. Turns out you can do a little bit less and end up uh, better off in the long run. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we would love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment, particularly on iTunes. We really like that. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. You can hear me share my thoughts on that one as well, uh, along with Spencer Pallison and Fred Dreyer. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash VeloNews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. Fast Talk is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by a competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.